Here's my big idea. The grace of God can save anyone from anywhere, from anything at any time. Mary will be my chief example of this main idea today. And we're really going to look at Mary in kind of her origin story. We are fascinated with origin stories as a people and a culture. Uh, we become so familiar with a person sometimes that we can forget where they came from or what made them famous or why they hold a prominent place in culture and society. And yet an origin story tells much about a person. And we become fascinated by them. As I mentioned, we make movies, write books, and share anecdotes about the origins of the people we revere. I mean, whether you are an orphan son of Krypton sent to Earth where the yellow sun's radiation would grant you extraordinary powers, or an orphaned vigilante committing to serving the city in the dark so those who walk in the light need not fear, or perhaps an Amazonian child crafted on a clay with an island with no men, given life by the Greek gods to serve as an ambassador to the word of men and seek justice for the oppressed. Is my nerd showing yet? It is, right? It's bad. It's bad. Today we're looking at Jesus' origin story through Mary. And while much of Christmas time and culture and, and, and even a, a giant sect of Christianity becomes obsessed with Mary, ultimately her story has meaning because Jesus is in it. And ultimately your story will have meaning if Jesus is in it. Let's begin. Luke, 20, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month... Uh, that would be the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, not the sixth month of the year. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is most likely no older than 15 and probably closer to 12, some, somewhere in this range at this time in her life. When she is greeted by the angel of the Lord, we find her in a small town, uh, Galilee, betrothed to be married, getting ready to start her life, start her marriage. If you are a young woman and you, you've been engaged, you know all the excitement and all the ceremony that comes along with that, Mary is right in that sweet spot when God breaks in and throws everything up in the air. Mary's just going about living her life as a peasant maiden, virgin, betrothed to be married. As one Bible commentator puts it, she is a nobody from a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. And yet God breaks in and shows grace to her. The grace she received is found within the context of the angel's message to her. Now, before we deal with the content of the message, I want to, I want to correct a few of the, the mistakes that we make often within Christian theology and, and understanding. And so these are the Mary mistakes we make. The number one, Mary, the first or primary Mary mistake we can make is we can think that Mary is the source of grace rather than the object of grace. What I mean by that is, is there is nothing particularly special or extraordinary about Mary. God is not breaking into her life because she has behaved herself into a place of favor with God. Rather, she is an ordinary person whom God is intervening into her life. When people make the mistake of praying to Mary, they mix this up because they think she has grace to give. When they consider her the favored one, they think that there's something within her that has earned God's favor, and yet we know that the gospel of Christ doesn't work that way. Favored one it means that she has received kindness from someone. There's an implication of graciousness acted upon her. 
The word favor here in the angel's message means that Mary is a passive recipient of God's grace rather than one who can give grace to others. Mary is dependent upon God's grace, just like you or I. That's the first uh, mistake we can make with Mary. The second mistake we can make with Mary is there are those who consider that Mary was a sinless virgin for her whole life and therefore is worthy of worship after Jesus. The Bible never says Mary was without sin or that she remained a virgin or that she could or can extend grace to sinners. What the Bible does say is that Mary indeed was the mother of Jesus, but that she was also saved and used by the grace of God. That since she received grace from God, we know that this was not a right or a privilege for her. It's not based on works or reputation. But the grace Mary receives is based upon God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Her example reveals to us that God's grace is shown to lowly sinners just like you and me. Mary is saved the same way we are. And we are saved the same way Mary was. We are saved by the unending, overpowering, overwhelming, sin-conquering grace of God. When we feel small and insignificant and overlooked, we can know that God is for us. Because we see him intervene in a small and insignificant virgin maiden betrothed to be married. The content of Gabriel's message has much to teach us both about God's grace and about the ultimate source of God's grace for us in Jesus. Let's begin in verse 29. But she, Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. As we talked about last week, uh, Encountering the glory of God or a messenger of the glory of God can be a frightening experience. And that that reaction is totally appropriate and right. That when we are encountering the glory of God, we become suddenly aware of all the ways we are not glorious. And so Mary becomes aware of that and she's troubled and trying to discern what kind of greeting. Is this a positive, negative thing? Is my life over now? What is about to happen next? The angel interrupts her, sensing her fear, and gives the most common negative command in all of the New Testament. Do you know what it is? Fear not. Do not be afraid. Beginning with trepidation... The angel gives her tidings of good joy. Maybe this morning, coming through the doors of your local church, you felt a little fear this morning. Maybe you were afraid that as you interacted with people, they'd sense that something was off this week, that you weren't quite right, and that carried some anxiety or some fear for you. Let me just put you at ease this morning. There's something not right with all of us. We are all dependent upon God's grace here in this moment. And the grace of God is not something you need fear in this place. 
but rather it is the very thing, like it did for Mary, that will ease your fears. A couple things we know from the angel's message, both about Mary and then ultimately about her son, which is the real point. Uh, The truth about Mary, number one, she has found favor with God. Again, God in his sovereign providence has chosen to break into her life at this moment. Has God ever done that to you? Just kind of going along Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, living, and then all of a sudden God breaks in with a new set of circumstances, a new reality that he's going to use for your good and his glory. That's what happened to Mary here. And she is an object of grace. She's a recipient of grace. It is God's active grace poured and showed upon her to break into her life, not her originating it because she was well-behaved or right-mannered. Number two, we read that the Lord is with her. That in the circumstances and daily life, God is watching over her. That his presence is with her as a member of his family. And number three, we learn that she is blessed by God. This is a blessing beyond just the normal reception of grace and salvation. This is a particular blessing that God is going to bestow upon her. Her name will be linked with the Savior's name forever. Think about it. We're talking about this young maiden from Galilee 2,000 years later. It's a special blessing that God has bestowed upon her. Again, out of his sovereign grace, not because there was anything in particular special about her. Now, let's look at the angel's message concerning Mary's son, which is ultimately the real reason why we're all here. Amen? Amen. There's five things, or I'll, I'll make them six things. Six things that the angel tells Mary about the child that she's going to give birth to. Uh, number one, uh, he gives the child a name. His name is going to be Jesus. If you're, if you're taking notes, the word Jesus or the name Jesus literally means Savior. Now, Luke doesn't add that little contextual note here, but we know that Matthew does in chapter 1 when he tells the same story about Jesus' name. He says, his name shall be Jesus because he will save their people from their sins. Right from the beginning, the promise of Jesus has his purpose in mind. He has come to rescue his people from their sins. Number two, he will be great. He will be great. This adjective functions not as a name, but rather indicates his being and nature. You need only read the New Testament Gospels to understand the greatness of Jesus. No other human being, no other person has walked the earth since or before to have an impact on humanity. The greatness of Jesus is found in several areas. Number one, I think it's found in his compassion. Jesus was the son of the Most High, and yet there was not a moment where Jesus was rude. There's not a moment where where Jesus didn't have time to bestow kindness upon the human beings that he walked amongst. And, And consider the divine nature of Christ, which means he lived a sinless lifestyle surrounded by sinners. Do you know how difficult that is? If you're a parent of young children, you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. And yet Jesus, his greatness is revealed in his compassion. He had compassion on the lowly and broken. He had compassion on the outcast. He had compassion on the blind and the deaf and the mute. He had compassion on little children. He had compassion on women. He had compassion on men. There were none who encountered Jesus who were not the object of his compassion. Jesus' greatness can be found in his leadership. Consider Jesus' core team. 
We have 12 men, one of whom is, is an enemy and a thief, the entire course of the ministry. Some are tax collectors, which means they worked for the government. Some were zealots, which means they wanted to tear down the Roman government. And Jesus built this as his core team. This was his small group community. And yet he lived and did life with him and got these 12 men, save Judas, 11, organized and impassioned and convicted to tell the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God to light the world on spiritual fire after his death and resurrection. To be able to take these men from all kinds of walks of life, motivate them and move them into the kingdom life. Jesus' greatness can be found in his compassion. Jesus' greatness can be found in his leadership. Jesus' compassion can be found in his mercy. As I mentioned, one of his core group was a traitor from the beginning. And yet for three years, Jesus loved Judas and extended him mercy. Jesus knew what was going on. Jesus had every right to cast him out, call him names, dismiss him and deride him. But for three years, Jesus loved Judas because he was merciful. But perhaps the ultimate reason Jesus is great is because of the service he has provided to humanity. Jesus willingly laid down his life for sinners like you and I. Consider, found completely innocent, went on trial, yet dies the death of the guilty. Scripture tells us that for a good person, perhaps someone may lay down their life. Who's laying their life down for those sitting on death row? Jesus did. Because he's great. Right from the beginning. Number three. The angel tells us that he will or has been called the son of the most high. Jesus is, is the Messiah. He's the rescuer. He's the redeemer. It must be interpreted according to his sonship. That is, if Jesus is going to be the one who lays down his life for sinners, he must be the son of God. No one else could do it. The debt that our sin has created required a sinless sacrifice, and the sinless sacrifice could only be committed by the Son of God. And so when the angel tells Mary, hey, your son is going to be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, it is directly tied to Jesus' purpose. He's going to be the Savior, so he must be the Son of God. Number four, he will sit upon the throne of his father David. This is an interesting promise that the angel makes about Jesus, because we know that Joseph is the great, 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 great grandson of David, not Mary. And yet the circumstances in which we find Mary, betrothed to Joseph, but now going to be pregnant. I'm not sure how you would treat your pregnant fiance, who's supposed to be a virgin. But Joseph's got to have that conversation with Mary. And yet... The angel promises here that Jesus is going to sit upon the throne of his father David, which could only happen if he was a part of David's lineage, which he's going to receive from his stepfather, Joseph. Even in the midst of all this kind of Jerry Springer chaos that this angel is creating, God knows 
what he's going to do and minister in Joseph's heart as well. And so Jesus will receive the promise given to David that the king of Israel would sit upon the throne and last forever. Jesus will be the one to fulfill that throne. Now, what we know from the story of the gospel is Jesus never sits on a physical throne, does he? He never reinstates a physical kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom of God is something spiritual. It's inaugurated at Jesus' birth and is accomplished at his death and reinaugurated at his resurrection. We live now in the kingdom of God. It exists right here in our midst. When we live as disciples of Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the fruits of the Spirit and in the gifts of the Spirit and doing life and community together, we live in the midst of the kingdom of God. Right now, in the midst of this broken world, we are in the kingdom of God, living as its citizens. One day, the rest of the world is going to recognize when the king gets back. And then all, we're told in Revelation, every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You know what this means? Whether you are a Christian or not, you will be kneeling and confessing. Would that you would do it now in worship and not later in judgment. But knees will be bowed, tongues will be confessed. Why? Because the throne of David is Jesus's. Which leads us to number five. He will reign over the house or over Israel forever. Jesus is a king whose kingdom lasts forever. That's number six as well. His kingdom will not end. It's imperfect now as we live and try to embody it to the best of our ability. But one day Jesus is going to come back. He's going to complete it. And he's going to reset everything in the new heaven and the new earth. All of that contained in this promise to a virgin maiden in Galilee. That her son would be all of this. His name would be Jesus. He would be great. He would be called the Son of the Most High, who would sit upon the throne of his father David and reign over Israel forever, and whose kingdom will not end. Mary receives all of this good news. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary's got a few logistical questions here, and I can't blame her, right? Like she's going to receive all of this, that, that she's going to give birth to a son, and yet she goes, hey, um, by the way, I, I'm a virgin, I'm betrothed to a man, and we, we've not consummated our engagement and marriage yet, so um, like, how's this going to go down? Verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. The angel's response to Mary's question how will this be since I'm a virgin? The power of God. The power of God. The angel's response is that the power of the Most High will overshadow Mary. There will be a miraculous, supernatural happening that the laws of nature will be surpassed by the power of God here. That something miraculous is going to happen that's not going to require the usual physical anatomy to accomplish a pregnancy. That God's doing something special and unique. 
And it's because God is doing something special and unique that this child, Jesus, will be called holy. The word holy here in context speaks to Jesus being set apart for a specific purpose and plan of God. So Jesus being born this way, not only just to fulfill prophecy and Old Testament promises concerning the Messiah, but also for a particular purpose, that Jesus' birth will stand out in the course of human history as special. It will have a miraculous and supernatural. It will surpass the laws of nature in Jesus' birth. Again, it's why we continue to celebrate it 2,000 years later. I mean, let's be honest. The climax of the Christian calendar is not Christmas. For bonus cool Christian points, what is it? It's Easter, right? Just, to, just as amazing as Jesus' birth is, it's not the climax. Like, if we're going to celebrate a holiday, it's got to be Easter because that's the place where Jesus died but didn't stay that way. Where God, too, surpassed the laws of nature. But we recognize God was doing something miraculous here. It's why we're still celebrating. It's why we're still talking about it. It's why there's always that awkwardness when we talk about Jesus' birth, like on Christmas Day, 2,000 years later, right? Like when, when my little girls, my seven and five year old, talk about Jesus' birthday and Jesus coming, like, no, no, but Jesus has already been here. When we look for Jesus, we're not looking for little eight pound baby Jesus, Ricky Bobby style. We're looking for King Jesus. But the power of God was here. It was present. The natural law was surpassed by God. The angel tells Mary, this is how this is going to happen. The child would not be born by normal biological process. He would go through the process of birth, being carried to a full term of pregnancy, yet he was to differ from all of humanity, not having a human father. His conception occurred by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a miracle in the strictest sense of it all, an act of God that only he could do. That's the God that we believe in, isn't it? The God who alone can bring something out of nothing the God who alone can bring life out of death. The God who alone can bring fertility to a barren woman. The God alone who can bring a virgin birth. Nothing is impossible with God. Amen? Amen. And then to prove this to Mary, the angel gives Mary an object lesson. Oh, by the way, Elizabeth, your cousin, the older lady who's barren, who's longed for a child her whole life, she's in her second trimester, registered at Target. <laughs> God gives Mary, through the angel's message, an object lesson of his power that he could bring life to Elizabeth. I have a couple questions I was thinking about this week as I considered Mary and her position and all that was promised concerning Jesus. How much of our life is lived dependent upon the power of God like Mary's was? I had to be honest about myself, I'd probably say not much. I don't want to discount the life of the Spirit that lives in each one of us, but I wrestle with the things that, that, that I'm doing and, and ask myself, can I get this done in my own power and strength? Or is what I'm doing dependent upon the power of God to be accomplished? Which means, that is to say, that it could not be done if God was not in it. 
And then second, how much of my life or our life is dependent upon the Holy Spirit and his influence and leadership? Because this is going to take a gamble for Mary, right? I mean, she's going to have to receive this as gospel, as truth from God, and then she's going to have to live with this announcement because this isn't an instantaneous change in her life, is it? It's not like, hey, Mary, you're going to have a baby. Boom, he's here. No, no, she's going to have to live with this thing for 10 months. She's going to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit and his influence and leadership in her life. She's got to go have this conversation with her parents, with the parents of her betrothed, with her betrothed. She's going to have to have these conversations and say, God is breaking into my life in a dramatic way, and I believe in his power. And so I thought, if God is able to perform the miracle of a virgin birth, certainly he can handle the cares of my daily life, can't he? If God can handle the miracle of a virgin birth, certainly he can handle the care of your daily life. Mary's response, verse 38. Having received the message of the good news about the son she will have, Jesus, the great one, Having understood that God's going to do something miraculous here, Mary responds in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Notice Mary doesn't raise any objections. She didn't hold out for an easier calling. She didn't say, I'll pray and get back to you later, Gabriel. She didn't ask God what would happen later if she said yes. All Mary needed to know in this moment was that God had chosen to use her and that was enough. She receives the favor of God and obeys without hesitation or qualification. Mary would give up her husband-to-be. She would give up her reputation It cost Mary to follow the message of Jesus. In one sense, Mary could even be described as the first Christian who believes in Jesus and becomes his servant through her motherhood to him. Listen to her words. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Know that God's revelation and salvation is not limited by your sin and past this morning. Know that God's revelation of Jesus is not limited by your position in culture and society. Know that the grace of God here this morning through the salvation of Jesus Christ is offered to all free of gender, free of race, free of creed, free of position, and free of power. If you are willing to believe in Christ today, his grace is for you. Become a willing servant of God today. There are two things you must believe and one thing you must do. First, you must believe that like Mary, you are a lowly and oppressed by sin and need of rescue and unable to free yourself from that sin. That's the first thing you need to believe. Number two, you must believe like Mary, the son that she gave birth to is the holy son of God who was born, who lived, and who died but didn't stay that way. You must believe those two things. And finally, the third thing you must do, the one one thing you must do is surrender to his will and submit to his word to give up control and to put things into his purpose 
and to live for God no matter what others think. Let me pray for you, church. Father God, thank you for Mary and thank you for her son, Jesus. Thank you, God, that by your power, you can manage our daily lives. I pray, God, that you would give us the courage to believe that Jesus is who Gabriel said he is. That for those, God, in this room who are feeling lowly and outcast, you would give them grace today. You would give them the courage, like Mary, to submit to your will. To say to you, here I am, your servant, let it be to me according to your word. Would you rescue those in our midst who need rescuing, God? Calm the fears of those sit anxious and worried. Would you encourage and give strength to the weak? Give grace to the humble. Would you break the pride of the rebel? Would you call home your sons and daughters this Christmas, God? That they may not ever know another year apart from you. Thank you, God, for your word and its power to speak to our souls. I pray that you help remove the distractions that are just a part of me and my own sin and weaknesses. That you would be in our midst now as we desire to worship you. We ask this through Christ's powerful name. Amen.